Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Eyes without a face or Glenn Danzig's Verotica and its precursors. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello and welcome. It's time for your Horror Vanguard episode of the week. I am John, joined as always by my good friend and co-ghost, Ash. Ash, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, it's good. It's good to be back in the crypt recording yet again. Uh, it's good to be living in my new swampland home. Uh, my environment is full of many new sticks and leaves. I'm feeling enriched. I mean, this is what we want. This is what we want. Occasionally... Uh, your podcast producer may start feeling understimulated and have to be moved into a new enclosure, which you load up with <laughs> microphone cables and damp moss, and and that's how they get through. That's how they get through the day. I am super excited to be talking about the film we're discussing today. We um, try on this show to make sure that we uh, encompass a broad range of different aspects of cinematic history, of different uh, countries, different directors, and we are talking about uh, an absolute classic of post-war French cinema, Georges Franju's uh, Eyes Without a Face or Les Yeux Sans Visage. Um, it's a bit of a bit of a kind of um, it's, it's in the canon now, and as a result, there's probably quite a few people listening to this who have not had a chance to watch Les Yeux Sans Visage. Um, so. I think it's probably a good idea if we get just a really straightforward and direct explication of what this film is all about. If you ask for a straightforward and direct explication, you will get exactly that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I just made that quip and then read the first line in my head. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome, welcome, everyone, to your new and improved horror vanguard. Cinema shares its lineage with thousands of years of art that attempts to affix and transfix the fluid passage of time into solid, repeatable moments. The motion of cave paintings as they danced under the uncertain light of moss lamps, the ghost shows of the phantasmagoria, and early motion photography all strive to capture events. Through this struggle, we have associated moving art with the ephemeral. The goal is to capture a moment lost to either time or imagination. This goal makes cinema the art of specters. However, our preoccupation with the spectral belies a material fixation. In the watching of cinema, we stare at screens animated by film stock that was distributed throughout the world by truck drivers and couriers. The film itself is built of an assemblage of props, equipment, and the lives that each feel the weight of their materiality when in the process of capturing a filmic ghost. The focal point of the conversation may be a phantom, but it's affixed to a singular point on this earth through a material spellcraft. Speaking on his film Les Sangs de Bêtes, Georges Franju said this about framing the real-world violence and gore depicted in that film. To explain it as a realist while remaining a surrealist by displacing the object in another context, in this new setting, the object rediscovers its quality as an object. It is as an object that we greet les yeux sans visage, both an object of art and a materialist object. Let us strive to look upon this film as we would a lover wearing a new face. Join us as we unseat eyes without a face and place it into a new, unexpected context. Ooh, yes. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, where should we begin? I think we should begin in uh, our home away from home, our little our little summer cottage out in the countryside. The formalism zone. And there might just be enough echo in my room right now to not have to use any effects in post. <laughs> so let, let, let's let's begin at the very beginning. Um, how would you introduce somebody to Georges Franju? Well, first, I think we need to talk about prehistoric cave paintings. 
to situate this. As much as I would like to do that, I'll just save that for a different episode. <laughs> so someone someone suggests that we do EGA so I can just like talk about cave paintings the entire time. Uh, Georges Franju is a French filmmaker who is doing fun and exciting things with surrealism. Um, Franju cut his teeth in documentary work, uh, which is not what you typically would associate with the surrealist filmmaking tradition. But I think that that weird perspective colors his later cinema, cinema especially Eyes Without a Face. Uh, what, what would you say about uh, the genesis of Franju? Yeah, so he starts in um, 1949 um, after... Um, so mid-30s, he and a whole bunch of other people are making sort of 16 millimeter short films in and around Paris. He gets involved in, um, you know... French film clubs and French journals. Um, and of course that he is involved with the found, founding of Cinématique Française, which was um, a non-profit French film organization founded in 1936, I think. Uh, obviously, then you have the Nazi occupation of Paris. And 1949, uh, after the war, Franchu is, um, makes uh, a whole host of nine different documentary films. And I know there was um, at least one that you wanted to talk about before we get onto Eyes Without a Face. Yes, I think it's, talking about this film, I think it's so important to situate it in a film uh, called The Blood of the Beasts, um, or Le Zang de Bet. Uh, it was one of Franju's earliest works. It was a documentary that he made about French slaughterhouses. Uh, and he did a few really interesting things with that documentary that I think we can kind of see the historical successors to in Eyes Without a Face. Uh, the, the first is that he intentionally chose to film it in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, and very, very specifically, uh, he, he did that because like this is uh, one of the most unsettling films I've ever seen. And like, you know, gore and horror really doesn't have much of an impact on me typically because like, I, I can't turn off the film critic part of my brain. That's like, oh, that's a, that's a really, like, I like that mix of fake blood. Like, it, it flows really believably, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or I'll, I'll think, like, oh, how many hours did that actress have to spend in makeup just to do this scene where her arms are ripped off or something like that, you know? Like, I, I get too clinical for it to really hit. Um, but because this was real footage and because it was intentionally shot in black and white, and the, the, uh, that quote that I read during the Precy about uh, unseating objects and returning their status as object to them, uh, Franju accomplishes this by contrasting the kind of slaughterhouse footage, which is unedited and realistic and largely pre-industrial too. So it's not like the factory of processed meat, it's the uh, dudes with hooks mostly. But it's yeah. contrasted with a kind of like, you know, proto-boho uh, French shopping neighborhood uh, that's just got a lot of like happy, nice people buying and selling goods and being about a nice part of town. And they're, they're within like walking distance of each other is part of the reason like Franju chose these subject matters. You know, the, the, the points of contrast are natural, but what would you say? I, I completely agree. I think what's really good about that film is that it shows something. So I think quite a lot of the time there is a very kind of tight focus when talking about slaughterhouses it's very very mic microscopic uh and it becomes a kind of issue of of uh moralism which you know is is fine up to a point but i think that's an in that's an inherently kind of limiting way of trying to get people to understand the issue and i think the blood of the beasts manages to it, that juxtaposition of showing how those nice new shopping districts are inherently bound up within the, the brutal violence of those those men with hooks in in slaughterhouses is so effective. And, and the choice in narration too, I think is in, in incredibly powerful. You know, like uh, all, all of the narrator's commentary is just like either flat descriptions of the kind of technology being used, right? Like the captive bolt gun and, you know, like all, all the other kinds of like implements and techniques. Or it's like this really unsettling commentary about the men themselves in this labor that they're doing 
Like there's yeah. this extended bit about a man who lost his leg in the process. There's lots of conversations about people who've gotten ill or injured. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of like just blase chat, like, oh, like the, he, he likes to whistle while he works kind of thing. Um, yeah, ab- and absolutely. And there, there, there's one sequence where it's like, oh, like this guy, this guy can skin a calf in the time it takes a bell to strike noon. And then you you just like watch it as the bell strikes noon and then the camera shifts to like this view of the city skyline as it continues and like it, it incredibly successfully unseats and uh, restores, you know, like this kind of alien object status to the butcher shop in a way that like, uh, the, you know, because like the natural comparison today, of course, is like the PETA uh, uh, sneak camera footage of what goes on inside of meat processing plants. Yeah. Uh, which, yes, is horrible uh, and difficult to watch, sure. But I think to build on what you said, like it, it's woven into this moralism that buries itself in its identity as an object. You know, it, it is a bit of animal rights propaganda when you when you view it from like a PETA context, you know, and that carries with it a lot of cultural baggage and assumptions and ideas that I think Franju is able to like pry out of that even in 2020. One twenty twenty one is the year. <laughs> no, I, I I completely agree, and I think I really like what you said about this idea of like restoring the alien nature to things. It's a very, um, it's it you know it's tied up in a lot of kind of very classic French ways of thinking, particularly uh, existentially, right? This idea of mm-hmm. uh, one's sudden kind of coming uh, coming to awareness of the absurdity of things. I think is is a really uh that's a really kind of strong current in a lot of um french philosophy a lot of french culture culture through the 20th century um so yeah i I completely agree yeah there's there's only um one other thing i wanted to bring up in uh, les angevet but it was uh in a interview that franju did about the film he was talking about the violence um and he said violence isn't the end violence is the means Hmm. And I think that that is really important to consider, especially in the context of Eyes Without a Face, right? Because the ending of Eyes Without a Face is just absolutely haunting. It's a it's a non-ending, you know, like like the film the film ends where a contemporary slasher horror film would pick up. Yeah, and I think that that is something that's incredibly important to look at, right? This idea that violence does not end things. Violence is merely the continuation of of other uh, you know events that keep moving past that incident of violence. Yes, yeah. It violence is it isn't the culmination of something, right? It's it's this kind of ongoing uh, continuum. I mean, that's that's how Laser Saint Visage begins, right? It begins with. We've already missed the first act of hideous violence that's been enacted in this film, because that's that the film opens. We've already got a body we have to get rid of, and that that is easily one of my favorite things about Les Yeux Sans Visage is that not not only does it end in media res, it ends in this moment with with no resolution, but it also kind of begins there. Yeah, you know, totally. it, just like you said, it begins with the body. It, it begins with Edith Scope's character being, you know, horribly disfigured in a car accident uh, that her father is responsible for, even though we don't really know what happened and why. Like, there's a lot that's missing in these moments. And I really, it, it, it makes this so much more in- integrated into, like, a larger believable society. You know, this isn't, this isn't an isolated event happening in, in some rural hotel uh, this is a deeply grounded thing that's hooked into a kind of an immediate moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the 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 kind of questions, the gaps in it, aporia that open up in the film, it, it's not a problem, right? It's not, you know, it isn't just a, it isn't just a plot hole that we don't get to know the resolution. It's that sometimes you don't, and the film is more interested in in creating mood and affect and. Uh, image, I I would say, than it is with trying to give you. Here is absolute. Here is the flashback where we see the initial. <laughs> here is here are the first unsuccessful experiment. We don't need to see any of that, right? Because it manages to create so much with with 
by by leaving out that, by allowing space for us to enter into its kind of participatory anthropology, right? We become enmeshed yeah. in its world. And this is this is so important, especially for a contemporary context too, because so much of like, I think we might be starting to finally trend away from this a, a little bit. Um, our contemporary cinematic moments kind of awash with the antithesis of this, right? Like we have so many movies that are just like, you know, like, like the Han Solo movie is a great example of this. It was just a chain of references to stuff Han Solo did or touched in the original movie. Yeah. And that's, that was it. You know, there's, there's nothing else inside that film. It was just like, Oh, do you want to find out how Han Solo got his cool necklace? Do you want to find out how Han Solo got, you know, his cool spaceship? Do you want to find out how he got the other thing that you know that he already has? And it's just like, it, it was, it was a pointless Honestly, like it was just, it was worse than the Transformers and being a literal commercial for toys. Yeah. And, and it kind of narrows the imaginative space that you, you have to work in as an audience member, oh, as, yeah. as someone, someone who's watching and trying to engage with this. Um, and I think to kind of like flesh out a little bit of what you're saying, maybe we should talk a little bit about um, surrealism which is the artistic movement and tradition that Franju is very closely associated with and the ways in which surrealism in cinema and art tends to cut um, against this idea of a kind of strict mimetic representation and a kind of strict linear three-act structure in its storytelling. So you have written in our notes here, planes and graveyards. And if I'm not mistaken, you might be referencing my single favorite scene from the movie. Uh, yes, I am. I'm referencing, I'm referencing the scene uh, at the mausoleum in Les Saint Visage uh, with uh, our good doctor hacking away at the ground with a pickaxe um, whilst overhead a plane flies. Um, and it causes this kind of panic um, in in the the face of the much put upon secretary, with her fondness for her with her with her choker made out of pearls, um, what what did you think about that moment? So I, I I loved this because I think this is such a good example of the subtlety that surrealism is capable of, because I think surrealism is laden with a lot of misconception that if like oh if you're doing surrealism you're going to be like Salvador Dali. You know, you're going to have really, these, these really like loud visuals, melting clocks, impossible monsters, the, that kind of thing. But surrealism can have to it a, a subtlety and a quietness and an understated quality that I, I think is almost its better half. It's, it's almost the more exciting parts of surrealism where like, we don't know anything about that moment. We don't know what she sees in that plane, what what its connection is to the greater story, like the, the source of the tension and the fear, but it just works. It works I, so incredibly well. Go, uh, go on. There are two kind of big philosophical touchstones here. The first one being the French surrealist André Breton um, and the other, the other one being uh, Walter Benjamin. So Benjamin argued that surrealism was a kind of... Um, had this kind of ability to disturb the mythic assumptions of capitalism, uh, particularly of this idea of a kind of rationalist, evolutionary approach to history. And it did this by kind of recontextualizing and reinterpreting the symbols and kind of culture of both the past and the um, present simultaneously. So this is why I really like that scene. This is why I really like that scene, because it's a kind of very classic... Benjaminian moment of of surrealism because you have the past represented by the comfort of religion and the mausoleum and you have the plane uh, this kind of symbol of modernity and of progress and of technological sophistication and both of them collide in this kind of jarring and really unpleasant experience so it's designed to kind of jolt the audience out of a kind of um passivity almost what do you think a lesser film would have had like some explanation of Louise's attachment to the plane, you, you know, so some, some, a point of reference that would have reconnected us to it and made, it made that scene make sense directly. But by not doing that, it really forces us to introspect. It forces us to get into the movie because we demand understanding as an audience. 
And I think for me, where kind of my mind went, so this, this film was made post-World War II. Um, it, it's kind of dealing with this cultural moment, right? And like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the, the plane is this kind of manifestation of modernity, right? You know, the, the plane was the military technology that reshaped World War II entirely. Um, you know, the, the plane kind of is one of the few technological pieces that like singularly defines contemporary history, right? Like international travel at the, you know, drop of a hat is now humanly possible, including transit and all of those implications. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the airplane is also the device that dropped the nuclear bombs on um, Hiroshima, Right. Like the, the plane is also, you know, the one of the weapons of war that devastated Vietnam. Right. Like Paris the plane as well. Paris. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The entirety of Europe, too, during the war, like the, the, the plane may be a symbol of progress, but it's like this incredibly dubious and like poisoned gift. And it contrasts so well with the film's not so mad, mad doctor, because he, too, he's on the cutting edge of surgical advancement. You know, he's he's redefining skin grafting as a way to help people recover from serious injuries. But the, the path that he's chosen here is one of unspeakable terror. And, and in a way, like in that moment, like I kind of spontaneously stumbled into this relationship between our mad doctor and planes on a conceptual level. And I think you're right. You know, as this is this is this is post-war Paris. He's he's a he's a middle-aged, late middle-aged professor, you know, and it isn't an enormous stretch to go during the war. I'm sure there would have been pr- plenty of uh, both opportunity and need for medical uh, innovation to to actually try and do maybe desperate, obsessive things to try and keep people alive. So I think you're completely right. He's he's not entirely uh, unsympathetic. There is like there there's a kind of monstrosity to him, but it's one which is tragic, right? It's it's not one which is you know uh, completely repulsive. Yeah, Fran Zhu has a great quote about this in an interview. He said, "If a man who is obviously abnormal acts in an abnormal way, that's normal." However, your character is much scarier if he seems to be normal but acts abnormally. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's like the scene where he's interacting with the little boy uh, who has some vision problems. And he comes away kind of going, I can, you know, trying to save everybody is this driving obsession. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I think what you say there about that, that scene in the, the graveyard is super interesting and shows just how kind of powerfully this surrealist tradition of juxtaposition um, and the fondness for montage, especially in film, really works to kind of challenge an audience to think more actively about what it is they're seeing. And I think, I think this ties in nicely to a conversation on realism. <laughs> Interestingly yeah. enough, we have to talk about surrealism's kind of polar opposite twin yeah, absolutely. Let's let's do so. What are your thoughts then? What, what what do we mean by realism, and how does that kind of mesh with Les Saint Visage? So the first thing I would say is that like we we have to kind of like take a step back from our contemporary appreciation of realism and the quote unquote realistic, because today that conversation is almost wholly devoted to um, how good your computer graphics technology is and how realistic those effects are. And, and that's always been true to a certain extent, right? Like the, the verisimilitude of effects work has always been, you know, one of, one of the uh, things realism is forced to carry around with it. But I think now it's, it's just so much more in your face constantly. When there's, there's a larger conversation about our relationship to the real and how that's recreated in art that escapes merely photo accuracy. Well, I think this is a question. What do we mean by realism? Because I think this, this, there, there's some really interesting kind of thinking about realism, which is that we say all the time, right? Realism is not realistic, right? It, it isn't just something that 
feels like it could happen in day-to-day life, right? 19th century literary realism was organized around a certain um, ideological perspective, mostly uh, bourgeois consciousness coming to its own self-understanding in the wake of, uh, you know, the revolutions, the bourgeois revolutions of the late uh, 1700s. So this idea, and modernism, literary modernism particularly, was a reaction against uh, or, or, or a reaction towards some of the tendencies within uh, literary realism. So I think we shouldn't say that like c- cinema has to be realistic. Realism is a particular style, an aesthetic, a mode of creating. It isn't something that like, so when people go, this film doesn't seem realistic, what they're really saying is that it doesn't chime with the ideological preconceptions of what cinematic realism should look like. Absolutely. And, and re- realism is its own, it, like it's a failed teleology, right? Like re- realism can never actually be achieved. You can't actually do a pure and true realism, even if you ide- ideologically would want one or even ideologically need one for further mm-hmm. arguments on top of that. Like you, you can't do realism, Mm-hmm. You know, like like a realistic documentary of a forest, like you're you're going to leave out perspectives of vision, right? Like uh, uh, mushrooms and fungal matter are a great example of this. Are, are those are, is that plant life? Are they growing? Are they living? Are they dying on their own? Or is that an apparatus of death? Are they disease and infection? And even that dichotomy contains within itself a, a negation of some greater realistic appraisal of the two, right? So it's like this thing that just redacts infinitely. Yeah, I mean, you end up in the with the the Borges uh, map problem, yes. right? The most mm-hmm. the most realistic map is the one which is one to one, and you end up kind of like, so so to make a film to kind of have any kind of this this I guess is me taking a position on a very old cinematic debate, which is that by pointing a camera at something, and calling action and then calling cut, you have imposed a perspective. You. You have not captured truth. You have, in some sense, even even if you try and only take a very passive role, you have constructed the appearance of truth. Absolutely, absolutely. There is there is no passivity in in film. You know, everything is a decision that is made in support or against a particular point of view. Yeah, yeah. So so to to. I think the best, maybe the best comparison that we can make here is between kind of um, theatrical realism and Brechtian alienation as being the contrast between cinematic surrealism and cinematic realism. So I think, I think a, good, a good specific within like the formalist elements of Eyes Without a Face to explore both sides of this coin would be the use of black and white. Hmm. And just re- really quickly, uh, uh, Franju shot a lot on black and white, even though he didn't technically need to. Color film was available to him throughout his entire career. There, there was never a point where he just kind of had to do black and white. Um, he, he elected this as choice. And in uh, Le Zang de Bet, he specifically chose black and white because, in, uh, to paraphrase him, to do it in color would have been too horrific. And yeah, it would have yeah, it would right. have gotten a visceral gut reaction. It would have made people purely nauseated rather than you know risking that line as it did with me but then also being like deeply intellectually effective yeah um i i think the use of black and white in this film in lisa Saint visage is also um an aesthetic choice obviously there's the infamous graft scene um mm-hmm. which which there is no way the film would have not been cut to hell if they'd done it in color um, and it also would not have looked nearly as good. Um, it would have really struggled to to kind of hold on to the impact of the imagery that it gets in black and white. Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was a challenge that Franju faced because when he got the project, he was expressly told that he couldn't have mad doctors because the German censors wouldn't allow that so close to the end of World War II. Um, he, he couldn't have a lot of blood and gore because the French censors wouldn't have permitted that. And he couldn't have done a lot of, uh, you know, torture with animals and scenes like that because that would have, you know, upset the British censor boards. 
So those were like three core elements of the novel he was adapting to film. So I think the, the pivot to black and white helped a lot with those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes the film look strikingly beautiful in places. And even with like the, like the, the incredibly notorious facelifting scene, like what, what would it, what's more effective and especially what's more effective in the long haul, if that would have been in color, then we would have gotten to see like a, a very goofy looking prop, or if that would have been what it was, just a very quick black and white shot where our, our, you know, we're like, as an audience, our minds are just so hungry to fill in that detail. Like we want to explore that image where we're compelled into it, where if we had it in color, there, there's almost this, this barrier that color puts between us and the frame. Mm. I, what you say made me think of something that um, Tarkovsky says about film, that really the great innovation, the thing that's new as a contribution to art in film is um, the art of editing. Because photography pre-exists film. Um, and so what film has is its ability to manipulate time, which is what, when you say action, when you say cut, you've, you've kind of captured a slice of time. Um, you know, to think, think of it in terms of the pricey, you've made time into a material object, right? You've had t- time gets captured in, in film. Um and I think that's an interesting way to think about those choices as well, to try and get away from the realism of presenting the world as it is. What do you think? Well, I think that's incredibly important, right? Because what, what is the ideological function of saying that cinematic realism is a flat depiction of reality as, as accurate to a kind of normative eyesight as we can possibly recreate? There, there are a lot of, like, that has an ideological function that is not ideologically neutral, that is not a flat reality, that precludes so many perspectives and ways of seeing that, that film inherently and naturally wants to recreate. And we leave out whole swaths of reality when we do that. Mm. And especially in the, you know, in the context of editing too, right? Like editing as a, a often under discussed, under explored aspect of the cinematic art, right? Like editing has, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of similar problems, right? Like there, you know, we've emerged into a moment where there's like a, a decided and well-understood filmic language, right? Everybody understands what a jump cut does. You know, we, we just, we visually, we know what that means, right? If the edges of the screen start getting dark and shrink down into a circle, and then that circle of color grows really bright again into a new scene, we, we, we're not going to think like, oh my God, the entire world was destroyed in some kind of cosmic cataclysm and then reinvented in the moment completely. And, you know, we'll, you know, they, we'll know they did like an iris wipe to a new scene. Yeah. And I think that creates its own, almost like a meta-realism within cinema, right? Because editing now has this formalized, constructive element to it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think... I, 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 f- I find the conversation around editing super interesting, especially in the context of a horror film, which had to do so much to get around the senses. Because, you know, it's like... It isn't just about what you show, it's about how long do you make a moment last for. And that's the incredible thing about film, right, is that its ability to compress and stretch out time into something else. It's like the, by by beginning in media res, um, with the, the the dumping of the first corpse, right, you've you've begun it has this kind of immediacy, you're jolted into the story, and the implication is this story has been going on for longer than we've been watching right much longer and that the 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 face graft scene you know it isn't just about how it's shot it's about how long does the viewer get to see it because there is this kind of attraction and repulsion right that, that operates in editing as well where you want to draw out the tension to have the payoff of like the one quick moment of kind of pure horror i think i think that is a brilliant way to look at that and I also think that that is a, a good point. We're, we're about halfway through the length of this episode, and I think this is the longest formalism zone we've ever done. Well, I'm not surprised. 
right? <laughs> I, I think it's time to to exit the formalism zone and and enter the uh, discourse without a face zone. Um, well, to do that, let's let's talk about how this film um, is, is basically uh, discipline and punish by Michel Foucault. <laughs> So, listeners, if you notice that my mic quality has abruptly changed and probably gotten a lot better, uh, a few technical gremlins uh, attacked me, uh, unbeknownst to my knowledge, at the beginning of this episode, but they have uh, since been disciplined and punished. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about the two big institutions of this this film. The two the two. Um, sites in which disciplinary surveillance and and uh biopower are produced upon the bodies of various subjects which is uh medical institutions and the police so so what do you what do you think about how this film talks about those two those two institutes the the um the medical and the the the, the judicial what I find to be in, incredibly interesting about what's going on here is that, like, again, this fits the horror vanguard, uh, a theorem that we have postulated throughout our uh, 150 question mark episodes, uh, is that the police are revealed by horror to be not capable of their spoken functionality, Right. Uh, the, the catching of criminals, the serving, the protecting, all of that stuff is not actually what they're good at doing. Yeah. Uh, and, and this movie, I think, uh, lays that really bare in an interesting way. Right. Like, you know, like the, the, the police are extra bad at, at catching the face stealer. <laughs> Glenn Danzig's face stealer is completely uncaught yet again by by the police in this one. So by the French by the French police. Um, so Glenn Danzig just... is two for two in movies here. Well, way way to go, Glenn. <laughs> um, yes, once again, uh, horror vanguard is proven. Our point about police and horror movies being completely useless is no is no longer a point. This is science. This is this is a a law of the form. Um, the police are not there really uh, to do like crime prevention. They're there to basically act as an arm or instrument of um, kind of bourgeois patriarchy, right? Because yes. it's uh, Christiane's uh, fiance when she when she kind of breaks. And, and whispers his name down the phone to him is the one who gets the police involved. Uh, and I, I, you kind of think that if, if Christian had had other friends or people who had gone to try and find out what had happened to her, the, the police would have laughed them out of the room. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And like, like what, what do the police do after getting, getting this information, right? Like they, they immediately like, press gang uh some some random young woman who was guilty of you're caught shoplifting rather and after releasing her and saying nothing bad was going to happen they they do a very police thing which is catch her again lie to her a bunch and then trick her into almost getting her face stolen as a way to bait yep. out the face stealer <laughs> yep uh and uh, the, very little of that seems to have been explained to her. Like, oh, by the way, we want to use your uh, very beautiful face as bait for this mysterious face-stealing doctor that we've been unable to catch because the fiancé of the face-stealing doctor's daughter thinks he maybe heard her over the phone. <laughs> and so there, there's one scene in this movie that just got me like, it it got a very good laugh out of me, and that's so. So after they've, their plan is that they're going to have this young woman dye her hair so she looks like uh, uh, Doctor Genesee's uh, daughter, whose face was mutilated in a car accident he caused. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so he's been he and his secretary Luis, uh, who it's hinted that he did a face reconstruction surgery for Luis at some point, and that's why she's like forever in his debt. 
but I think I, I think there's some more interesting things with her character as as a mother figure towards Christian and a surrogate wife for Doctor Genesee after his wife dies. Um, mm. But uh, so they're they're going to have this the, this uh, amateur shoplifter uh, check in to Doctor Face Stealer's clinic of horror. And go. I have some face problems. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think you might be able to do something? My, my, my face has been feeling really loose, almost like you could really easily take it off and put it on someone else's face. Could you help? Um, but but she she goes into the clinic, right? She she checks in, uh, and then immediately the doctor is like, "Okay, you're fake, and whatever's wrong with you, leave." <laughs> and of course, on the way out, gets gets kidnapped as part of the face stealing operation. But then, like the cops arrive to investigate. And they're like, doctor, where did this woman go? And he's like, I don't know, she left. And then, and then immediately the fiance and the cops are like, yeah, okay, well, that's pretty reasonable, isn't it? I guess we're having one goofy day. See you guys later. <laughs> and it's just like. <laughs> mm, uh, well, what can you do? Um, it's it's amazing. This that I think what's super interesting is that relationship between the police and the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course, the, the, the doctor's secretary who drives a Citroen 2CV the most evil car ever made. Um, <laughs> yeah, that relationship, that kind of deference that's shown, because it's really the the kind of source of power, the source of authority, is that it's not the police, it's not the it's not the kind of armed uh, force of the state. It's the productive biopower of the medical mm-hmm. institutions that is the true source of power and authority in the film. Absolutely. And, and just the way that it f- very flatly frames what Dr. Face Stealer is up to, you know, like the film, the film is not shy about him and it's also not shy about complicating him. Right. Everyone around him congratulates him on his work. The only person who, well, there are, there are two groups of people who are not feeling what he's up to. Um, yeah. and, and that's his daughter uh, who has gone through failed face transplant after failed face transplant. Um, and of course, the uh, many people who have now had their faces stolen—they're not having the best of times. <laughs> they're, they're really not. They're really. Turns out, having your face stolen um, by a strange surgeon who lives in a mansion full of dogs that he's been rescuing and experimenting on—it's not a great way to spend your time. There's a bit, bit of a downer that. <laughs> uh, it, it really is, yeah. But but no, like a, 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 everyone, everyone else is so. D- deeply and ideologically woven into needing to respect this guy as, as a great innovator of the surgical arts that they suspect him of face stealing. They trick a woman into checking into his face stealing clinic. She mysteriously disappears. And then he just kind of shrugs and everyone is like, yeah, okay. You know, we did suspect you of face stealing and the woman did disappear and you did see her last, but also whatever, what are we going to do? Bye. Yeah, and that is that, that is the most yeah, yeah. scathing indictment of how power is reproduced here. Yeah, and power is not simply repressive, but is you know genuinely reproductive. It's generally productive, as as Foucault points out. And I think mm-hmm. what's what's interesting is that Christian's um, big kind of sin is a is a lack of faith. This is what uh, her father is keeps saying to her: "Why don't you have faith in me? You know, I told you I was going to fix this." Why don't you have faith in me? And of course, Louise is completely devoted, is a kind of faithful servant of this this uh, disciplinarian patriarch. And so it is Christiane who has to kill Louise. That's how Louise dies, and it has to be that way because there's no other way that would make any any sense at all. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, I think this idea of of kind of faith in the in the almost kind of religious faith that gets put onto it, the the doctor the doctor's going to save everybody. It's super interesting. I mean, I, I think you're completely right. <laughs> and it also like it, it's it's a way to tie in like the the church's relationship to the reproduction of this power alongside of the medical apparatus and the state apparatus. Right. It, it, it's a way of because he's it's not just faith in someone who could heal you. It's it's faith in the patriarch. You know, it's it's faith in the father that, you know, he's he's working mysteriously and often doing terrible things. But you really just need to, like, be quiet and obedient as this happens. 
So it's that same it's that same kind of linear patrocentric logic that we see moving in the medical apparatus and the police apparatus in this film. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's deeply kind of Freudian, you know, this all of these sublimated, you know, he's this kind of sweating figure uh, like hovering over the faces of these young women that he's stolen um all all so that he can make his um his young imprisoned daughter into something perfect um there's this kind of deeply freudian undercurrent running through his work which which is deftly kind of contrasted with that sort of benign paternalistic messianism of like ah well monsieur le doctor is is here to kind of save the day to you know, it's what the woman says at the lecture that he that he gives at the very beginning. You know, what what you've you've opened the horizons for us, and he says, "Well, you know, we should be there already." And his mm. his whole kind of vibe is just like this deeply disappointed father figure that nobody else is being as bold or as kind of determined as he is. Yes, yes, a- absolutely, right, and like the the relationship with the daughter too is just like. The, the most unsettling Freudian thing since a very similar movie that we will talk about in just a moment. Yeah. It, I mean, it, there's, there's something very classically Gothic about it. You know, the, oh, the, yeah. the you know, she, she wears those long uh, diaphanous gowns. So it looks like she's, she's constantly floating through the, the, through the staircases and hallways of this giant Gothic mansion on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and he, she's kept there by, you know, this older familial male relation who demands her complete obedience. It's, you know, it's straight out of Anne Radcliffe. Yes, this is like, what is more classically gothic than than an ephemeral, almost ghost-like woman being imprisoned by some kind of like, like, like hulking and ever disappointed patriarch who is just further and further consumed by his own violence until he is beset upon by the wild animals he thought himself the master of. Yeah, absolutely. That is just like, just uh, print. <laughs> but I think it'd be really interesting to talk a little bit more about um, faces, masks and faces. Um, and particularly Christiana's, uh, Christiane's, uh, relationship to to her own appearance and how she thinks of herself that because i'm thinking of that super interesting short sequence where it looks as if the heterograft has been successful um and yeah i was wondering what what do you think about that um so this is the, first, the first thing i wanted to mention is that like in in interviews uh edith scobe talked about uh, her experience as an actor wearing the mask and being in this movie and in order to it's it's not just a simple mask that's depicted in the movie it's like a prosthetic application that, that makeup and special effects had to put on her every day it's a, over three hours to get her into makeup and ready to act for the day um, who knows how long to remove the thing and then while it was on she really couldn't speak she also couldn't eat all of her meals she had through a straw while she was wearing the mask and so she she talks about how isolated she was, right? Because like during during breaks, she can't really talk or hang out with anybody because it'll upset the the prosthetic application. So she, in a way, becomes Christiane, right? She becomes isolated and imprisoned in this kind of face that she's stuck with. I think there are two kinds of horror that people respond to here, right? One, which is a, a kind of a loss of identity, which is like, oh, you, like she's lost her face. We don't know who they are anymore. Or there's the kind of flip side of that, which is this idea of being trapped with trapped within a self. You know, you're you, you're aware of the kind of of the mask of subjectivity that you're literally imprisoned in, but you can't get out of it because it's you. Those, I think, are the two kinds of horror that are in operation here. What do you think? I, I think that's really interesting, right? Because I think it there's oh, there's just so much to talk about. I mean, like this movie is about stealing faces <laughs> and, and just like face off and Glenn Danzig's uh, uh, evil face stealer lady <laughs> film. Um, there's so much to talk about with identity and how we construct our identities and how we present our identities and what defines those moments too. 
especially in, in this film, right? Like, you know, uh, the doctor's daughter is never really given the time, the space, or the agency to recover on her own terms from what this crash did to her, right? Yeah. And, and <clears throat> we also have this kind of like the, the patriarch's ego, right? Like the doctor isn't as concerned with healing his daughter as he is concerned with successfully making his face-stealing surgical technique work. <laughs> I'll never be able to show my face at the local association of face-stealing technicians again <laughs> if I don't get this right. Wait, if, if I can't show my face, but I can show someone else's face. Hey! Hey, zing. <laughs> but, but no, like I think that all of these questions kind of boil over in, in this movie because the movie, as a thing in and of itself, like... I think very cleverly doesn't lean too heavily in any direction on those, right? It leaves all of these questions unanswered. And by doing so, saddles us, the viewer, with the weight of those questions. Yeah. But I think there is something really, there is something really compelling about this idea of like, it's written about um, in the context of chronic illness quite a lot. Um, it's the kind of contraction of the, of the, the, das Lebenswelt, the life world that one exists in. If you are, um, if you are someone who has a, has a chronic illness, or you know, in the case of Edith uh, Skjöb's character, she can't even go outside. Mm. You know, your your the world of your life becomes this very very narrow space, um, and that's, you know, that's another classic. Like Eve Sedgwick writes about this that the kind of classic marker of the Gothic is a kind of claustrophobia, mm-hmm. and the claustrophobia here is like between one's consciousness and the externality of one's own skin, right? That How much more claustrophobia can you generate than being trapped within yourself? I, and I think that that is just part of the fundamental genius of this movie, right? Like, what, what is the essential gothic labyrinth if not, like, not only being stuck inside of a single room, but being stuck behind a very thin plastic mask? Yeah, but I think that, that that question of like ableism that, that this movie kind of evokes, especially now in, in 2021, as these conversations are becoming, you know, for for better, hopefully much more common, is is central to like I think how we look at this movie now. Um, mm, yeah, and 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 reading it in that context, right? It's just like we've got questions about the social model of disability that this film kind of runs parallel to and, you know, also careens into head on as often as humanly possible. And I think that that adds, you know, a a layer of tragedy to, to Christian's character, right? Like there's, there's just so much about her that's, that's just pained constantly. And, and part of that is how, because of her father, Right. And her father's like hell bent nature to make his face stealing, you know, technology work right this time. She's never given the space or the ability to like come to terms with what's happened to her body and how she can move forward through that. You know, and and that's never even raised as an opportunity. Right. Like she's never she was never given a moment to interact with her fiance and either continue that relationship or have closure, you know. Like she's she's imprisoned behind the mask, but she's also imprisoned emotionally, right? Stuck in this world where she can never like have closure from the accident. And all of that is the answer to the question that Louise asks her when she stabs her in the neck with the scalpel. You know, mm-hmm. Louise like collapses and says, "Why? Why?" And it's like all of that, but it's left in, in, in again in a very another in another very beautiful moment in the film. It's just left completely unspoken. Um, and that moment where Christiane decides to rescue uh, the next victim, the latest victim, uh, and murder Louise to, to, to ensure her escape right towards the end of the film is like maybe the first moment of genuine kind of freedom and the, the, the chance to, to, to kind of have an agential capacity to work th- through things on her own terms. 
Yeah, and I think I think that in, in and of itself is deeply gothic, both in like a historical sense and in a contemporary kind of horror studies sense, right? Like that's kind of the model for a lot of early gothic heroines is minimal agency, but then towards the end, there's these heroic strikes back against the world around them. And mm. then in a contemporary sense, like Christiane's a final girl, you know, like like her and this this other woman emerge as potential final girls in this film, having like lived through this terror and survived it. They're just both on, I guess, other ends of the scalpel in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I th- I think that that the, this whole kind of conversation around like appearance and um, uh, kind of our, our physical contingency is super interesting because there's the there's the uh the moment where uh, uh the doctor realizes that uh, christian's um heterograph has failed we get that kind of chilling sequence of photographs with the voiceover which again feels very documentarian right that feels like something that could have could have come out of um franji's work uh Hotel des Invalides is his study of the the French government's military hospitals. So, like, I think that 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 whole combination intersects into some really interesting questions. I I have an interesting question for you. How do you feel about Hitchcock's Psycho? That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in in exploring this idea of subjectivity and of um, familial dynamics and of <clears throat> the kind of like Freudian libidinal economy that operates within um, extremely hierarchical and domineering family structures. I think Le, uh, Les Heures Saint Visage is better at, at doing the things that Psycho does than Psycho. There's my hot take. Um, Franju is better than Hitchcock in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that. We were talking about this earlier, and my I, I like Psycho. I, I think Psycho is a good movie. Um, it's a fine proto-slasher. Uh, however, it does obscure the vision of Hitchcock's other movies, right? Psycho has such an outsized place in the discussion of Hitchcock's work in, in kind mm-hmm. of every respect, right? Like, we, we treat Psycho as if it's maybe the only horror movie that Hitchcock made when that's just one flatly incorrect because of the existence of the birds but two like so much of his other movies deal with these these freudian tensions these horrific themes right these gothic natures and we lose sight of them for psycho and it's just like just just talk about eyes without a face instead of psycho for a while (laughs) um yeah i i i think it does it does what Psycho tries to do, but better than Psycho does it. Um, and I think it explores those issues of emotion and affect and and psychodrama in ways which are really kind of fascinating. And I I mean, I 100% agree with you. This is, Eyes Without a Face is the best, not only a better version of Psycho, but it is also the best version of a Danzig movie is something that we can now say. So we have to live with that. <laughs> I can't, can't believe that we're going out on an episode on the legendary Georges Franju by talking about dancing. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, Kafka and his precursors by Jorge Luis Borges, except it's Glenn Danzig's Verotica and his precursors <laughs> by Horror Vanguard. Oh, what a, we, we're not topping that. What a, what a place to wrap it up. <laughs> Let us let us do the thing that we do then and ask our audience and our listeners some questions. We want to we want to hear what you think. Please do let us know on Twitter. Please do join the Patreon and uh, give us your thoughts through the uh, the Horror Vanguard Crypt, our Discord server. Um, so some questions for you: If you have uh, listened to the episode, if you have watched the movie, um, what do you think about the ending? We haven't really spoken about that, but um, Christian just uh, wanders off uh, with doves into the forest. Um, and my second question for everybody is how does the, uh, how does obsession function in this film 
And what is the kind of um, the form of obsession in cinema? Or how do we represent that kind of ob- uh, obsessional behaviour? Uh, Ash, what about you? Uh, so I'm, I'm still a little jet lagged from the move. So I only have one question for all of y'all today. And that is, uh, Franju stated in an interview that the fantastique is created when the bizarre is revealed. It is created, not seen. So then how do we as critics and audience members participate in this construction of the fantastique? Mm. In that? Uh, oh, and yeah. yeah do you let us know? <laughs> We're just, we've not we're done so this good. for a while. We're so good. We took a week off and we've entirely forgotten how to podcast. <laughs> um, yes, do let us know what you think uh, of uh, our questions for you. Please do let us know what you thought of the movie, what you think about this intersection of surrealism and horror. And as always, if you have recommendations for films you'd like us to cover, uh, comments or queries, do let us uh, do get in touch with us on Twitter at Horror Vanguard. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>